Treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to the amazing world of radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to Amazing World of Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. We continue with this series voted on by our listeners at patreon.greatdetectives.net. And our Summer of Summer Replacement series uh, rolls on to the Johnson Wax Program. The Johnson Wax Program was a replacement for Faber, McGee, and Molly and had the same sponsor that they did. However, it was a very different program. It featured two very unique talents, Meredith Wilson and John Nesbitt. Meredith Wilson today is really remembered for one thing, the music man. It seems like it's something that every high school in the country has done. And even high schools around the world. Hugh Jackman got his start in musical theater at the age of 14 in a high school production of The Music Man in Australia. So if you're only going to have one thing as your legacy, this is a pretty darn good thing to have. The Music Man, plot-wise, really does take a nostalgic look back at the time that Meredith Wilson grew up and the pre-First World War Iowa. Musically, the play is just so innovative and so unique and memorable. From its famous uh, Rock Island start, where you have uh, salesmen, you know, talking a cappella, but in time to the motion and sound of the train. Then they have another number where where the heroine Marion and her mother are singing in tune with a little girl uh, doing a rehearsal on the uh, piano. And then you've got other songs like Shapoopy and You've Got Trouble. Wilson's career was more than The Music Man, and a lot of it was in radio. And in fact, I didn't actually see The Music Man growing up. I was intrigued by it because I'd heard Wilson's work over the radio. He did a lot of uh, programs where he would, you know, be just a typical band leader on a half-hour program. And often, as was the case on the Burns and Allen Maxwell House program, he would also play a bit of a comedic foil. He had a Meredith Wilson character who was a bit of a hick and a dope, which belied the fact that he was such an innovative and brilliant musician with such a sharp mind and a ability to create great works. And you didn't really get to see this either, unless it was either on the programs that he occasionally got to do himself, which were tend, tended to be summer programs, or the longer form variety programs where he might get to write a lot of longer pieces. Uh, things like uh, The Big Show and the Maxwell House Good News Program. Something like this, where he has got half an hour, even shared with a storyteller, does give him more opportunity than you might get where he's just being a backup to someone else. So that is, you know, one part of this formula. The other is John Nesbitt, and not to go on forever, uh, because Mr. Nesbitt's uh, been forgotten by most people. Uh, 
you could explain Mr. Nesbitt by saying that he was Paul Harvey before Paul Harvey was Paul Harvey. He was known as a storyteller. He told stories over the radio, but he was probably best known for movie audiences with his uh, Passing Parade featurette. They were short films. They generally ran about 9 to 11 minutes. And uh, essentially... Uh, a scene would be playing out with uh, Nesbitt narrating. These are really quite well put together. There are a few on YouTube. I'd encourage you to go search for the Passing Parade, John Nesbitt. Uh, they ran like 9 to 11 minutes in length, typically. He did a few of these for radio in his own syndicated passage, which might have like a bunch of short stories in them. Again, very reminiscent of Paul Harvey. He also, in addition to working with Mr. Wilson, would do do a similar program with John Charles Thomas, the singer. In addition to this, several radio programs, including the Family Theater, invited him on to tell the story of the Juggler of Our Lady at Christmas time. So these are two talents, really underrated, but they make for an interesting combination here. So with that introduction, we're going to go ahead and get into the Johnson Wax program. The first 90 seconds of this are a bit rough on audio side. Um, I'm sure Andrew will do everything he can to make it sound as good as he can, but uh, uh, might be bumpy for the first 90 seconds, but it will get better. Original air date is July the 21st, 1942. Let's go ahead and take a lesson. The Johnston Wax Program. The makers of Johnston's Wax, Johnston's Self-Polishing Glow Coat, and Johnston's Car New present the brilliant conductor-composer of melody, Meredith Wilson, and MGM's noted young commentator star and teller of amazing tales, John Nesbitt. Ladies and gentlemen, this program, in the words of John Nesbitt and the music of Meredith Wilson, with songs by Connie Haynes and Bob Carroll, is sent to you by S.C. Johnson & Son, makers of Johnson's wax finishes for home and industry. And now here are Meredith Wilson and John Nesbitt. I see you have quite a bulky collection of notes on your lady table, John, what your dramatic story is. Are we got hold of some new information about the underground mutiny that is circulated among the conquered peoples of Europe? And it led to a passing parade story about the one in Belgium that's called La Libre Belgique. And in one way, it's the greatest newspaper in the world. And Meredith has arranged a special musical score for it, I see. What else have we got on the musical side of things tonight, Meredith? Well, Hoho, we'll st we're starting out with the Susan March tonight. And while it is by no means the best known, it is, oddly enough, the favorite of every musician who ever played with Susan himself. It's called the Freelance. And incidentally, there's a small-sized yard about this number of Meredith. It seems that when John Philip Sousa toured the land many a year ago, the first youth player in his band was a skinny kid of 17, just out of high school, who later gave up flute playing and became an orchestra conductor. He never lost his affection for the great bandmaster, though. And no matter what kind of program he was conducting, he would sooner or later work in a Sousa march. And the flute player's name, of course, was Meredith Wilson. <laughs>
Lost Music. Another of those songs we've been featuring this summer, which John and Meredith have been selecting because, although according to musical experts they should have been hits, for unknown reasons they never had a chance. In 1940, a highly successful musical comedy began its run on Broadway. It was called Pal Joey. Its music and book were written by Rogers and Hart, two of the top songwriters of the country. And of all the numbers in the show, the one that the cast liked best, the one that the critics liked best, and that the writers liked best, was one called I Could Write a Book About the Way You Look, a very sweet, gentle melody. This number was triumphantly presented to the country at large, was played sporadically by a few big orchestras and then suddenly folded and was forgotten. Compared to many another Rogers and Hart tune, it was a failure. But no one knows why. It remains a mystery, and as such, we play it on our collection of lost music.
song hits. He's taken out of the library of lost music and given a fresh start in life. Which brings us to our business department for a few moments as Harlow brings his message from the Johnson people. No program of better car maintenance is complete if it overlooks the paint job. Even if your car sits idle for days at a time, that finish needs looking after. Smashed bugs and road grime cause deterioration if they're not removed. And a rough finish is a finish that collects more dirt and grime. So give your car a finish that's satin smooth, that sparkles like new, with the easy-to-use double-purpose polish, Johnson's Car New. You may already know that Car New both cleans and polishes in one application. But most people don't really appreciate how easy the job is until they try Car New themselves on their own cars. Car New is a liquid polish. You rub it on, let it dry, wipe it off. Then, if you want to give added protection to that showroom shine and save on car washings, you can apply a coat of Johnson's Auto Wax or the regular Johnson's Wax. Tie a string around your finger now as a reminder to buy a package of Johnson's Car New, spelled C-A-R-N-U. And here is one of the amazing tales on which John Nesbitt's reputation as a leading storyteller of radio and screen has been based. Tonight, it is the story of a tiny newspaper. Yes, a tiny newspaper. Small enough to fit into a loaf of bread or be tucked into a peasant's wooden shoe. For to be seen with a copy of it meant prison, and to have anything to do with the publishing of it meant death. Yet the name of the newspaper means life. La Libre Belgique. Free Belgium. Live Belgium. Tonight, this newspaper is 27 years, five months, and three weeks old, which means that it was first published on February 1st, 1915. 1915, Belgium conquered by the Germans, hostages shot against walls, newspaper editors hanging from public gallows. Belgium lost, crushed, destroyed. The German armies, victorious, unbeatable, triumphant. Then... As now. No one breathed in Belgium but what a German spy looked on. Whenever three men talked together, one of them was a spy. Yet, on the morning of February 1st, a pretty Belgian girl appeared at the office of the German governor, left him a perfumed pink envelope. Quite flattered and fancying that it might be a love letter, the governor general opened it. It wasn't a love letter. Inside was a little newspaper, volume one, number one, La Libre Belgique, Free Belgium, Live Belgium. A newspaper that cried out complete loathing for the Germans, blistering contempt for them, gave the facts about their military reverses, gave the news of America's growing sympathy, cried out in every sentence that Germany would one day be destroyed, that Belgium would one day live again. Who was writing the newspaper? Where was it being printed? To the German secret police, this became a nightmare. For every single week, a copy would be delivered to the governor general himself. He would find it under his desk blotter, stuck into his overcoat pocket, lying on the seat of his car. And week after week, month after month, it went out to 200,000 Belgian people. Every wind began to distribute it. And wherever it found a reader, a man took up hope. 
1916, the Germans employed a celebrated detective from Berlin to discover the hidden press. He analyzed the paper of a copy of La Libre Belgique under the microscope, found fragments of coal dust on it, followed the trail to a cellar far below the streets of Brussels, captured the editor and staff, took them up into the sunlight and shot them, then carefully smashed the press to fragments, melted down every morsel of type. The German governor wired Berlin of his triumph. He called a banquet of officers to celebrate. And at the table, he received an official envelope from Berlin, a message of imperial congratulations. But the envelope had been tampered with a little, and folded around the message was a newspaper. The next edition of La Libre Belgique. It had not missed an issue. Week by week, month by month, it went on. 1916 passed. Twelve times the Germans caught the printers and editors. Twelve times the shots rang out that ended their lives. Twelve times the newspaper sprang up again. The governor general actually had a nervous breakdown, was sent back to Germany as a completely defeated man. And by 1917, every man and woman in Belgium had read La Libre Belgique. The paper was now being printed in a funeral parlor. Its press was hidden behind a pile of empty coffins. The paper and machinery were smuggled to the editor inside of caskets that were delivered during fake funerals. The sound of the press was drowned out by volunteers who would gather to sing melancholy hymns in the funeral chapel. The 23rd editor was Victor Jourdain. He was an old man, but he could smile, for La Libre Belgique was now being published in the best hiding place it ever had. Yet for the first time, a traitor appeared in the Belgian ranks. The Germans were given a tip. They raided the funeral parlor and leveled it to the ground. In a few hours, Victor Jourdain was dead, and so was La Libre Belgique. That morning, its regular issue did not appear, and its last editor lay dead. That night, the new military governor went to the opera. Lying on his seat in the royal box was a picture of the Belgian flag. The picture was printed on the front page of a newspaper, La Libre Belgique, issue number 143, still wet from the press. There was also on the first page an editorial, and to the undying mortification of the German governor, it was signed by the name of Victor Jourdain, the man who at this moment was dead. Who printed the paper now? The Germans would never know until they were driven back in defeat. But it was the wife of Victor Jourdain who had secretly received the copy from her husband as he lay dying who had taken it to the last hidden printing press of the underground newspaper, there set it up and printed the entire edition with her own hands. That editorial is one of the bravest pieces of newspaper writing ever printed. And it reads, You came and took our lands and laid waste our homes and called yourselves our masters. But the time will come when we will drive you out again. We will never stop fighting you so long as a single invader remains on our soil. Two weeks after the Nazi conquerors rode into Belgium in the year 1940, they discovered that an underground newspaper was rousing Belgium to its lost faith, a paper called La Libre Belgique. It goes on tonight. Despite all the Nazi Gestapo officers in the land, despite the new punishment of torture before death, 
despite princely rewards offered by the helpless conquerors. A hundred of these secret newspapers are published over Europe now. A hundred secret broadcasts weekly to back them up. The Axis conquerors are so nervous over how they receive the news that even this program, innocent as it is, and the words I am speaking at this moment are being carefully taken down somewhere by Axis translators and examined to see if this story hides a secret code. But there is no secret here. The news is that America now labors for you, men of Belgium, editors of La Libre Belgique, wherever you are, editors of all the other hidden papers, wherever you are. America works day and night. The armies are growing. The sacrifices are just beginning. That the hour will come when the flags of every free people will fly over their own soil again. Libre Belgique. Free Belgium. Live Belgium. Live men of courage everywhere. turn from the somber things of world history to the typically American chapters of our own happy history of peace that Meredith Wilson tells in music. And Meredith himself can explain it best. Thank you, Arlo. Ladies and gentlemen, when we put together popular tunes, old-fashioned ragtime, and even a touch of swing into the group we call America Sings, we occasionally get a strange reaction. Something like, well, what do you mean calling that tune a folk song of tomorrow? Why, I heard it on a jukebox. <laughs> This makes old Wilson chuckle nastily and go right on playing them. A jukebox, you know, is a little part of America after all. Not elegant, but part of what we know. So were Model T Fords and flannel nightgowns and band concerts in the park. Holly Wally Doodle and old Susanna might have sounded pretty trite in their time, but we call them folk songs today. So it really may be that many a dance tune or bit of ragtime will end up in years to come as part of the folk music of America. Songs, if you please, like these. Take your dough when you go, go, go. Don't keep repeating it's the berries. The strongest oak must fall. 
the sweet things in life to you were just love. So how can you live while you've never owned life for the journey? So live and laugh at it all.
John Nesbitt has a very interesting announcement to make in just a moment. But first, I'd like to give you one simple sentence that's worth repeating over and over again. To take better care of your things, try waxing them. Replacements and repairs will become much more difficult before we get through with this war. It's just downright common sense to make things last. Keep them clean, protect them against wear. Dust and dirt, you know, wear things out more than anything else. That's why I say take better care of your things by waxing them. Give your floors, furniture, and woodwork a protective shield of genuine Johnson's wax. Protect all wood, leather, and enamel surfaces with this same wax polish. Every application of Johnson's wax gives not only greater protection, but brings out all the natural beauty of the finish. Floors that are regularly waxed grow lovelier every year, and they never need expensive refinishing. There are 100 extra labor-saving uses in your home for genuine Johnson's wax, which you can buy from your dealer in one of three forms, paste, liquid, or cream. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have some old, worn-out phonograph records in your home, will you give them to the authorized representatives of the Records for Our Fighting Men Committee, the American Legion or Legion Auxiliary or the Girl Scouts, who are planning to call at your house any day now. The proceeds of this record drive will be used to purchase thousands of brand-new records for our armed forces everywhere. No one is in more desperate need of music and relaxation than a fighting man. Your old records will help bring it to you. Time is up, so until with Meredith Wilson, Connie Haynes, Bob Carroll, and Harlow Wilcox, we join you again a week from tonight. This is John Nesbitt bidding a very good evening to you all. Speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax Finishes for the home and industry, this is Harlow Wilcox inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program reached you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. This is Chicago WMAQ. Welcome back. Well, I don't know about you, but the story of La Libre gave me chills. Just an, a great example of Nesbitt as a storyteller. And obviously during the war, so much of his uh, talent, and I think it is the case in this particular series, are turned towards uh, wartime topics and ideas of freedom and patriotism. It didn't always go that way. Even the later series he did with John Charles Thomas uh, tended to be a bit more varied. In 1942, uh, I think public sentiment on the war was at its peak. So eventually, public got to a point where they wanted people to ease off. They're like, we know the war's going on. We're doing the best we can. Uh, We kind of would like a little bit of diversion from it every now and again. And I like Meredith Wilson's talk about uh, songs being played uh, at the jukeboxes, the folk songs uh, of the future. 
And it's not, you know, exactly right. I don't think we view old popular music exactly the same way as folk songs. Just because folk songs, they tend to, you know, have that origin of, you know, really having this sort of grassroots, earthy sort of feel to it. Stuff that ended up in jukeboxes really uh, was the first uh, songs to become mass media. Have, you know, more of a polished feel, you know, from the start. But still, there's something about them that if you hear, you know, certain old song or a certain voice, it just takes you back uh, to that time. Another note here, uh, Connie Haynes, uh, who does some of the singing here, uh, would later become noted as the singer uh, for the Abbott and Costello uh, program for Camel Cigarettes. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this program. We're going to come back next week with another episode of the Johnson Wax program, which will be the maximum we'll do of any one series. Um, uh, most of these will just do one episode. Johnson Wax will do two, and there are a few others we'll do two of. But we have a lot more to get uh, to. But next week, another episode of the Johnson Wax program. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.